You're listening to a Powetcast, an audio netcast from Powet TV. P O W E T dot TV. Chell it. Hello, Powet fans and rest of internet. This is Sean Orange welcoming you to our first ever Powetcast. This is part of our Powet Presents series where we're actually going to cover something that was made eight years ago. This was a time when a certain author, Douglas Adams, was still alive. Uh, his TV miniseries, based on his most famous work, was the only visual representation of said work. As the theatrical release was several years off, and unfortunately would not be completed until after Douglas Adams' untimely death. I'm of course talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was originally a radio show produced for the BBC, and then became a very popular series of books, and eventually a Disney feature film, all written by Douglas Adams. The subject of this Power Presents netcast is a fan interpretation of the primary phase of the BBC radio production. The primary phase is actually the original version of the story, and so there are deviations from the popular book. Events originally written for the primary and secondary phases of the radio show were rearranged, edited, or omitted entirely for the books Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Restaurant at the End of the Universe. The changes are too numerous to mention here at the top of the program, but I promise during the course of this netcast you will get to all of them. However, one of the most glaring omissions that longtime fans will note is the lack of any sort of towel reference. This isn't an omission as such, as the real-world events that inspired the towel reference had not yet occurred. So this version is an amateur production, recorded throughout 2000 as an Us album by Not Them Productions. Uh, I have with me the production crew, Thomas Martinson, director, script supervisor, and fairly convincing falsetto. Yo, yo, yo. Uh, next, Keith Everson, sound engineer and megabyte wrangler. What up? And last, and certainly not least, Colin Ganyu, producer, sound editor, and underappreciated understudy. Word. For this netcast, we're going to release fits one through four of the primary phase on a weekly schedule. In the original production, as well as the Us version, the individual episodes were called fits, and so we're going to call them that here as well. These first four fits cover most of the events of the first Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy novel. Savvy fans will note that there are actually six fits in the primary phase, but we'll get into that over the course of the netcast. Suffice to say, it is our goal to release all six fits of the primary phase in one form or another. In this premiere episode, we are talking to the production team about their motives for creating their version. This is actually the third recording uh, by us. Originally, Tom, I believe it was a school project for a speech class or something? Uh, yes, uh, for an audiovisual class, actually, we had to record our radio play, or a radio thing of some kind. And it was originally a compilation work between me, uh, Craig Weber, who later did voices on the actual fit, and uh, Robert Randall. The first two were recorded onto audio cassette. So, yeah, I had a class project for my audio tech class in uh, MATC, and I, I came up with the idea of basically resurrecting this old idea, so I had to do less work to get it done, because, you know, it was already halfway there. And uh, so I roped in uh, Colin and uh, Keith into helping me out with this project, and we did it on uh, Keith's computer with uh, using a cool edit, I think, cool edit 96. Yeah, and uh, it, it was slightly better than the first one. It was excellent production quality, kind of. <laughs> I wouldn't use the word excellent. <laughs> what I do remember about that particular recording session was that we needed a sound effect for the bug bladder beast of Troll, which um, Keith and I recorded, I don't know, practically spontaneously, and we were really happy with it. It amused us for probably two weeks straight, and it eventually wound up in the it's final version. Uh, many of us had actually been involved in two separate high school forensics productions of this material. The class project kind of inspired me. I had done forensics for a number of years. And we did a forensics piece based on uh, 
the first fit where we took the, the, the radio script and we edited it down to a short play format. And uh, I, I, it helped uh, establish certain ideas about uh, using material from the book and uh, that uh, I used in, when I edited the later scripts. Interestingly enough, even though uh, we had all played some part before, the only people who actually directly reprised a role um, in this version uh, were Tom as the Prosetnik Vogon Jeltz and Caleb as Zaphod, head number one. So you've already done this twice before, albeit just the first fit. Why Why do it again? Technically three times once you got the forensics piece, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what came across us, why we decided to do it again. There was no previous instances. We'd always had school credit or a f- competition. The thing is, um, a couple of years before we did this, CDR drives had first come out and become popular, and I had one. So we thought it would be really cool to put together like a mix CD and we made a couple of these and I realized that's not a big deal right now but at the time it wasn't something that a lot of people were doing and uh, it was just kind of a big production thing for us and we wanted to do something a little more complicated than that and we all loved the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and and we thought that this would be the project we should do. The uh, original, the primary and secondary phases were not available you you couldn't find them online. It was hard to find them. You didn't hear them anywhere. In fact, the only really recordings we heard were the uh, was the rec- was a tape recording of the old vinyl Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, the, for the Restaurant in the Universe, the second episode of the vinyl series. And uh, yeah, so we did you we didn't have this stuff. All we had was the scripts. So the question I'm sure at least on some of your minds are why are we subjecting the rest of the world to this? What's unique? Uh, personally, the reason I wanted to do this uh, at all was uh, because even though it's an amateur production, and sometimes the voice acting isn't the best, I cite my own uh, acting as Zaphod in, 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 uh, in the earlier fits, um, the production quality, I feel, was very high. This was done literally in my parents' basement with uh, two creative sound card microphones, the ones that come in the box, and uh, I can't believe we pulled it off. I had the radio scripts. And I liked them a lot, and I really enjoyed them. But the books were so much more polished, obviously, because there have been three iterations, a play and a radio series and the vinyl at that point. So Douglas Adams nailed a lot of the details down by the time the book came. And, you know, they started writing the book back in the late 70s. So I wanted to include elements from the book. So I took a great deal of time and effort to find out elements from the book that worked really well, and I tried to incorporate them into the script. Obviously, we'll go over details of when and where I did this later on and as we discuss the various episodes. For instance, the fates of Zaphod, Trillian, and Marvin are quite a bit different Yes, uh, at the end of the first phase yes. than what we have here. Oh, yeah. One of the more ingenious things I thought um, when I was brought on as, as one of Zaphod's heads was that, was that we were actually going to do um, Zaphod has two different actors performing for each head, even though it was never written this way. I brought Sean in for it because Sean, I knew, would want to do it and would enjoy it. Uh, but I believe it was Sean's idea to bring Caleb in. The the two heads thing actually happened sporadically throughout the tertiary phase and the BBC radio versions, but it was actually the same actor doing both heads. Uh, so it's not quite the same as what we're doing here. And we did it first, so... And it wasn't really done very well. That's true. And they don't know us. Uh, None of us is actually British, but we try and frequently fail, hilariously, I think, to put on English airs. Uh, The British accents, mine, I would say all, everyone's involved, weren't very good through much of the first and second fits. I actually disagree. I think that was probably not very good for most of it entirely, except for maybe Collins. 
Yeah, and so even. Oh we'll yeah, talk yeah. about Marvin in the second. The show. British accents were. Uh, well, see, the thing is, this was recorded to be listened to in the United States. Therefore, everything's in American, not English. So, therefore, we speak with very bad English accents, or in my case, none at all. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we intended. Listening to the primary phase convinced me to track down the rest of the radio series, and hope it does the same for you as well. Uh, check out the show notes for links to purchase the official BBC Audio CD at Amazon.com. So, without much further ado, please enjoy the world premiere of Us Presents The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Us Presents The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Fit the first, in which the Earth's unexpectedly destroyed and the great hitchhike begins. Starring Colin Ganyu as the book, Craig Weber as Arthur Dent, Robert Randall as Mr. Prosser in The Barman, and Thomas Martinson as Ford Prefect, Lady Cynthia Fitzmellon, and the prosthetic Vogon Jelts. This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than 53 more things to do in Zero Gravity, and more controversial than Ulan Kalufid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? And in many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, the Hitchhiker's Guide has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom, because although it has many omissions, contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important ways. First, it is slightly cheaper, and second, it has the words Don't Panic inscribed in large, friendly letters on the cover. To tell the story of the book, it is best to tell the story of some of the minds behind it. A human from the planet Earth was one of them, though, as our story begins, he no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf knows the history of the East India Company. His name is Arthur Dent. He is a six-foot-tall ape descendant, and someone is trying to drive a bypass through his home. Come off it, Mr. Dent. You can't win, you know. There's no point in lying down on the path of progress. I've got off the idea of progress. It's overrated. But you must realize that you can't lie in the front of the bulldozers indefinitely. I'm game. We'll see who rests first. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it. This bypass has got to be built, and it's going to be built. Nothing you can why is it say. Got to be built? What do you mean? Why has it got to be built? It's a bypass. You've got to build bypasses. Well, didn't anyone consider the alternatives? There aren't any alternatives. Look, you are quite entitled to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time. Appropriate time? The first I knew about it was when a workman arrived at the door yesterday. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows. He said he'd come to demolish the house. Oh, he didn't tell me straight away, of course. Then, first he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told. But, Mr. Dent, the plans have been available in the planning office for the last nine months. Oh, yes. You went round to find them yesterday afternoon. You hadn't exactly gone out of your way to call much attention to them, had you? I mean, like actually telling anybody or anything? The plans were on display. And how many average members of the public are in the habit of casually dropping around at the local planning office of an evening? It's not exactly a noted social venue, is it? And even if you had popped in on the off chance that some raving bureaucrat wanted to knock your house down, the plans weren't immediately obvious to the eye, were they? 
That depends on where you're looking. I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. Ah, the lights are probably gone. So are the stairs. But you found the notice, didn't you? Yes. It was on display at the bottom of a locked filing cabinet stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying beware of the leopard. Have you thought of going to advertising? It's not as if it's a particularly nice house, anyway. Well, I happen rather to like it. Mr. Dent. Hello. Yes. Have you any idea of how much damage that bulldozer would suffer if I just let it roll straight over you? How much? None at all. By a strange coincidence, none at all is exactly how much suspicion the ape descendant, Arthur Dent, had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice. Arthur Dent's failure to suspect this reflects the care with which his friend blended himself into human society after a fairly shaky start. When he first arrived 15 years ago, the minimal research he had done suggested to him that the name Ford Prefect would be nicely inconspicuous. He will enter our story in 35 seconds and say, Hello, Arthur. Hello, Arthur. The ape descendant will greet him in return, but in deference to a million years of evolution will not attempt to pick fleas off him. Earthmen are not proud of their ancestors and never invite them round to dinner. Hello, Arthur. Ford, hi. How are you? Uh, fine. Look, uh, are you busy? Well, I've just got this bulldozer lie in front of Well, there was no, not especially. There's a pub down the road. Let's have a drink and we can talk. Look, don't you understand? Mr. Dent, we're waiting. Ford, that man wants to knock my horse down. Well, he can do that whilst you're away, can't he? But I don't want him to! Well, just ask him to wait till you get back. Ford? Arthur, will you please listen to me? I'm not fooling you. I've got to tell you the most important thing you've ever heard. I've got to tell you now, and I've got to tell you in that pub then. Why? Because you're going to need a very stiff drink. Now just trust me. I'll see what I can do. It better be good. Hello, Mr. Prosser. Yes, Mr. Dent, have you come to your senses yet? Can we just, for a moment, assume for a moment that I haven't? Well? And that I'm going to be lying here until you go away. So? So you're going to be standing around all day doing nothing. Could we? Well, if you're assigned to standing around doing nothing all day, you don't really need me here, do you? No, not as such. So, if you can just take it as read that I am actually here, I could just slip off down to the pub for half an hour. How does that sound? Uh, that sounds very, uh, reasonable, I think, Mr. Dent. I'm sure we don't actually need you here for the whole time. We can just hold up our end of the confrontation. If you want to pop off for a bit later, I can always cover for you in return. Oh, thank you. Yes, that would be fine, Mr. Dent. Very good. And of course it goes without saying that you don't try and knock my house off whilst I'm away. What? Good lord, no, Mr. Dent. The mere thought hadn't even begun to speculate about the merest possibility of crossing my mind. Do you think we can trust him? Myself, I'd trust him to the end of the earth. Well, yes, but how fast is that? Uh, about twelve minutes. Come on, I need a drink. By drink, Ford Prefect meant alcohol. The Encyclopedia Galactica describes alcohol as a colorless, volatile liquid formed by the fermentation of sugars, and also notes its intoxicating effect on certain carbon-based life forms. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy also mentions alcohol. It says that the best drink in existence is the Pangalactic Gargle Blaster, the effect of which is like having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. The guide also tells you on which planets the best Pangalactic Gargle Blasters are mixed, how much you can expect to pay for one, and what voluntary organizations exist to help you rehabilitate. 
The man who invented this mind-pummeling drink also invented the wisest remark ever made, which was this. Never drink more than two pangalactic gargle blasters unless you are a 30-ton elephant with bronchial pneumonia. His name is Zaphod Beeblebrox, and we shall learn more of his wisdom later. Uh, six pints are better, and quickly, please. The world's about to end. Oh, yes, sir. Not well the fault. Going to watch the match this afternoon, sir? No. No point. Foregone conclusion that, you reckon, sir? Arsenal without a chance? No, it's just the world's gonna end. Oh, yes, sir. You said that. A lucky escape for Arsenal if it did. No, not really. There you are, sir. Six points. Uh, keep the change. What, from a farmer? Thank you, sir. You've got ten minutes left to spend. Oh, could you please tell me what the hell is going on? I think I'm beginning to lose my grip on the day. Drink up, you got three pints to get through. Three? At lunchtime? Time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. Oh, very deep. We should send that into Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. Drink up. Why three pints? Muscle relaxant, you'll need it. Did I do something wrong today, or has the world always been like this, and I've been too wrapped up in myself to notice? Alright, I'll try to explain. How long have we known each other? Uh, five years, maybe six. Most of it seemed to make some kind of sense at the time. What if I told you I'm not from Guildford after all, but actually from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice? I don't know. Why, do you think it's the sort of thing you feel you're likely to say? Drink up. The world's about to end. This must be Thursday. I could get the hang of Thursdays. On this particular Thursday, something was moving quietly through the ionosphere miles above the surface of the planet, but few people on the surface of the planet were aware of it. One of the 6,000 million people who hadn't glanced into the ionosphere recently was called Lady Cynthia Fitzmillan. She was at the moment standing in front of Arthur Dent's house in Cottington. Many of those listening to her speech would probably have experienced great satisfaction to know that in four minutes' time she would evaporate into a whiff of hydrogen, ozone, and carbon monoxide. However, when the moment came, they would hardly notice because they would be too busy evaporating themselves. I have been asked to come here and say a few words to mark the beginning of work on a very splendid and worthwhile new Bevanford Bypass. And I must say immediately, what a great honor and a great privilege I think it must be for you, the people of Compton. To have this gleaming new motorway to your cruddy little village. I'm sorry, your little country village of Cruddy Cullington. I know how proud you must feel at this moment to know that your obscure and unsung hamlet will now rise in board as a very splendid and worthwhile Cullington service station, providing welcome refreshment and sanitary relief for those weary travellers on their way. And for myself, it gives me great pleasure to make this bottle very splendid and worthwhile champagne and break it against the noble crown of this very splendid and worthwhile yellow bottle. You got a towel, have you? Why? What? Should I have? Uh, no matter. What's that? Don't worry, they haven't started yet. Oh, good. It's probably just your house being knocked down. What? 
It hardly makes a difference at this stage. My god, it is! What the hell are they doing? We had an agreement! Let them have their fun. Damn you and your fairy stories, they're smashing at my home! Stop! Stop, you vandals! You homewreckers! You have crazed Visigoths! Stop, will you? Arthur, come back! It's pointless! Hell, I better go after him. Barman, quickly, can you just give me four packets of peanuts? Certainly, sir. There you are. Twenty-eight packets. Keep the change. Are you serious, sir? I mean, you really think the world's going to end this afternoon? Yes, in just over one minute and thirty-five seconds. Well, isn't there anything we can do? No, nothing. I always thought we meant to lie down and put a paper bag over our head or something. If you like, yes. Would that help? No. Excuse me, I've got to find my friend. Last orders, please! You pinstripe barbarians! I'll sue the council for every penny it's got! I'll have you hung, drawn, and quartered, and, and whipped, and boiled, and then I'll chop you up into little bits until. until. until you've had enough! Arthur, don't bother! There isn't time! Get over here, there's only ten seconds left! And then I'll do it some more! And when I've finished, I will take all the little bits, and I will jump on them! And I will carry on jumping on them, until I get blisters, or I can think of something even more unpleasant to do! And then I'll- What the hell is that?! Arthur, quick, over here! What the hell is it?! It's a flying saucer! What do you think it is? Quick, you gotta take hold of this rod! What do you mean, flying saucers? Just that, it's a Vogar Constructor Fleet! <laughs> what?! A Vogar Constructor Fleet! I picked news of their arrival! Hours ago, my son at the radio. Ford, I, I don't think I can cope with any more of this. I think I'll just go and have a little life. No, just stay here, keep calm, and just take hold of this rod. People of Earth, your attention, please. This is the prosthetic Vogon Jolts, the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for development of the outlying regions of the western spiral arm of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system, and, regrettably, your plant is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your elf minutes. Thank you very much. What the hell? There's no point in acting all surprised about it. All of the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display at your local planning department in Alpha Centauri for 50 of your elf years. So you've had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaints, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. We're all gonna die! What do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri? Oh, for heaven's sakes, mankind, it's only four light years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to take interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. And it drives the demolition beams. God, I don't know. A pathetic bloody plant. I know some people. There was a terrible, ghastly silence. There was a terrible, ghastly noise. There was a terrible, ghastly silence. The Vogon Constructor Fleet sailed off into the inky void. I brought some peanuts. Where? If you've never been through a matter transference speed before, you've probably lost some salt and protein. Well, that beer should have cushioned your system a bit, but uh, how are you feeling? Like a military academy. Bits of me keep on passing out. If I ask you where the hell we were, would I regret it? We're safe. Ah, good. We're in a small galley cabin in one of the spaceships of the Vogon Constructor Fleet. Ah, this is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I wasn't previously aware of. 
I'll have a look for the light. Alright, uh, how did we get here? We hitched a lift. Excuse me? Are you trying to tell me we just stuck out our thumbs and some bug-eyed monster stuck his head and said, Hi, fellas, hop right in. I can take you as far as the Basin Silk Roundabout. Well, the thumbs an electronic sub-ether device. The roundabout's at Bernard Star six light years away, but otherwise, that's more or less right. And the, uh, bug-eyed monster? Is green, yes. Fine. When can I go home? You can't. Ha! I found the light. Good grief! Is this really the interior of a flying saucer? It certainly is. What do you think? It's a bit squalid, isn't it? What did you expect? Well, I don't know. Gleaming control panels, flashing lights, computer screens, that sort of thing. Not old mattresses. These are the Natrasi sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogons or something. The Vogons run the ship. The Natrasi are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused. Here, have a look at this. What is it? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's sort of an electronic book. It'll tell you everything you want to know. That's its job. I like the cover. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody's said to me all day. That's why it sells so well. Here, press this button and the screen will give you an index. Several million entries, fast wine, do the index to V. There you are, Vogon Constructor Fleets. Enter that code on the tabulator and read what it says. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here's what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous. They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug blatterbeast of Troll without orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in a soft peat for three months and recycled as firelighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is to stick your finger down his throat, and the best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bug blatterbeast of Troll. What a strange book. How did we get a lift then? That's the point. It's out of date now. I'm doing field research for the new revised edition of the guide. For instance, I will have to include a revision to point out that since Vogons made so much money being professionally unpleasant, they can now afford to deploy Dentrassi cooks, which gives us a rather useful little loophole. Who are the Dentrassi? The best cooks and the best drink mixes, and they don't give a wet slap about anything else. And they will always pick up hitchhikers, partly because they like the company, but mostly because it annoys the Vogons, which is exactly the sort of thing you need to know if you're an impoverished hitchhiker trying to see the marvels of the universe for less than 30 Aldarian dollars a day. That's my job. Fun, isn't it? It's amazing. Unfortunately, I got stuck on Earth for rather longer than I intended. I came for a week and got stranded for 15 years. But how did you get here in the first place? Easy. I got a lift with a teaser. You don't know what a teaser is. I'll tell you what a teaser is. Teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for plants which haven't made interstellar contact yet, and they buzz them. Buzz them? Yes, they find some isolated spot with very few people around, and land right up by some poor, unsuspecting soul whom no one's ever going to believe, and then dropping down in front of them, wearing sitting antenna in their heads and making beep-beep noises. Rather childish, really. Ford, I, I don't know if this sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that. I, I rescued from the Earth. And what happened to the Earth? It's been disintegrated. Has it? Yep, just bored away into space. Look, I'm, I'm a bit upset about that. Yes, I can understand. So what do I do? You come along with me and enjoy yourself. You'll need to have this fish in your ear.
I beg your pardon? <laughs> Listen, it might be important. What? It's the Volon captain making an announcement on the PA. But I can't speak Vogon. You don't need to, just put the fish in your ear. Come on, it's only a little one. You should have a good time. Message repeat. This is a captain speaking, so stop what I need to do and pay attention. First of all, I see from our instruments that we have a couple hitchhikers on board our ship. Hello, wherever you are. I just want to make it totally clear that you're not all welcome. I worked very hard to get where I am today, and I did become the captain of a Vogon constructor ship, simply so I could turn into a taxi service for a degenerate freeloaders. I've sent out a search party, and as soon as they find you, I'll put you off the ship. If you're very lucky, I might read you some of my poetry first. Secondly, we are about to jump into hyperspace for the journey to Blanard Star. Our arrival will stay in dark for a 72-hour refit, and no one's to leave the ship during that time I repeat. All planet leave is cancelled. I've just had an unhappy love affair, and I don't see why anyone else should have a good time. Message ends. Charming, these Vergons. I should have daughter so I could feel better to marry one. You wouldn't need to. They've got about as much sex appeal as a road accident. And you better be prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasant like being drunk. What's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. Ford? Yes? What's this fish doing in my ear? It's translated for you. Look under the babblefish in the book. What's happening? We're going into hyperspace. I'll never be cruel to a gin and tonic again! The babelfish is small, yellow, leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, absorbing all unconscious frequencies, and then excreting telepathically a matrix formed from the conscious frequencies and nerve signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain. The practical upshot of which is that if you stick one in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech you hear decodes the brainwave matrix. Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could evolve purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as a final clinching proof of the non-existence of God. <laughs> the argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof desires faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the Babelfish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It proves that you exist, so therefore you don't. Q.E.D. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore he proves that black is white, and gets killed in the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop Ulan Kalufid from making a small fortune as he used it for the central point of his best-selling book, Well, That About Wraps It Up For God. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different cultures and races, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. What an extraordinary book! Help me write the new edition! No, I want to go back to Earth again, I'm afraid. Or it's nearest equivalent. You're turning down a hundred billion new worlds to explore. Do you get that much useful material on Earth? I was able to extend the entry, yes. Oh, let's see what this edition says then. Okay. Let's see. E. Earth. Tap out the code. There's the page. Oh, it doesn't seem to have an entry. Yes, it does. See, right there at the bottom of the screen, just under Eccentrica Columbus, the triple bested whore of Eraticon 6. What, there? Oh, yes. Harmless. 
Is that all it's got to say? One word? Harmless? What the hell's that supposed to mean? Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy and only a limited amount of space in the book. No one knew much about Earth back then, of course. Well, I hope you've managed to rectify that a little. Yes, I transmitted a new entry to the editor. He, he had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. Well, what does it say now? Mostly harmless. Mostly harmless? What was that noise? It was me shouting! No, shut up! I think we're in trouble! The Dentrasi? No, those are steel toe boots. Then who is it? Well, if we're lucky, it's just the Vogons coming to throw us onto space. And if we're unlucky? If we're unlucky, the captain might want to read us some of his poetry first. Vogon poetry is, of course, the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of the Asgoths of Kriya. During a recitation by their poet master Grunthos the Flatulent of his poem Ode to a Small Lump of Green Putty I found in my armpit one midsummer morning, four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging, and the president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Nobling Council survived by gnawing off one of his own legs. Grunthos is reported to have been disappointed by the poem's reception, and was about to embark on a reading of his 12-book epic entitled My Favorite Bathtime Nobles, when his own major intestine, in a desperate attempt to save humanity, leapt straight up through his neck and throttled his brain. The very worst poetry of all, performed with its creator, Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Greenbridge, in the destruction of the planet Earth. Vogon poetry is mild by comparison, and when the Vogon captain began to read, it provoked this reaction from Ford Prefect, and this reaction from Arthur Dent. I implore thee, my fountain drones. I hope to sleep wrangle with the crinkly bender wiggles. For otherwise I'll run thee in the goblets with my butcher cotton. And see if I don't. So, my friends, I present you a very simple choice. I was gonna throw you straight out into the empty blackness of space and die horribly and slowly. But there's one way, one simple way in which you may save yourselves. Think carefully. You hold your buried lives in your hands. Now choose. Either die in a vacuous space or. Tell me how good you thought my poem was. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks for listening to the first ever podcast. Uh, Fit the First was produced for Not Them Productions by Colin Ganyu, director Thomas Martinson, script supervisor Thomas Martinson, sound engineer Keith Everson, sound editor Colin Ganyu, final mix Colin Ganyu. This netcast was produced and edited for Power TV by Sean Orange. Guests for this episode were the Not Them production team of Tom Martinson, Keith Everson, and Colin Ganyu. Bandwidth and production assistance for this episode provided by That'sOrange.com. We'll be back next week with Tom, Keith, and Colin when Tom reminds us. I would briefly say that uh, for those of you not familiar, Forensics has nothing to do with the study of dead bodies. It is a speech competition. Until next time.